morning. It's great to be here with you. We are in our Exodus series. Uh, so before we jump into today's episode, quick flashback. The nation of Israel were in Egypt, crushed by the selfish ambitions of a powerful pharaoh. Egypt had enslaved them. Egypt had abused them. Egypt had battered any sense of hope out of them. They were trapped, desperate, and helpless. And then God showed up. There was a face-off between God and Pharaoh. Pharaoh's determination to keep hold of the people was met by God's stronger determination to free them. Pharaoh's stranglehold on the nation was met by the mighty hand of God, and God brought his people out of Egypt. And for many of us who are Christians, that is our story. We were trapped by destructive addictions, abused by thoughts of our past, struggling with pain and shame, and then God showed up and everything changed. But the question... Now what? They've been drawn out of Egypt, but what are we drawn into? What is freedom? Well, the Israelites come out of Egypt through the desert to the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the same mountain where God had called Moses to be part of the rescue mission. And this is what God says he's going to do. This is uh, Exodus chapter 19. You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The people go from being Pharaoh's property to the Lord's treasured possession. From slavery under Pharaoh to freedom under the Lord. What happens at this mountain is God forms a covenant with his people, a relationship, a partnership. The Lord is a king making them his citizens. The Lord is a groom making them his bride. He says to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. But the question is, what is a covenant? Well, turn to Exodus chapter 24. This is the passage we're going to be looking at today. And it tells us the shape of a covenant. Uh, we have been working section by section. You'll notice we've skipped over a few chapters. I will be referring to them later. But as we move into the second part of the book, we're going to be working a little bit more thematically. So it might involve a little bit more moving around. But we will still be covering the main parts of the book. Uh, now, I have to admit that before I came to speak on this, I didn't actually know it was here. But as I've dug into it over the last few weeks, it's really impacted me. Because this chapter shows us the shape of a covenant. And if a covenant is what it means to be free, this chapter shows us the shape of freedom. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is what is on offer to you becoming a Christian. And if you are a Christian, this is what is on offer to you. This is the life, the freedom that God has brought you into. So let's read Exodus chapter 24. Then he, that's the Lord, said to Moses, 
Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. So Aaron is Moses' elder brother, who's been working as his assistant. Nadab and Abihu, that's Aaron's sons, who will be his successors. And then 70 of the elders, they uh, represent the nation. So altogether, this is a, a chosen group of representatives. So the Lord says, come up, you, this chosen group, um, and worship from afar. Verse 2. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all of the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Freedom is shaped by presence. This passage starts with an invitation from the Lord to come up. Verse 1, he, the Lord, said to Moses, come up up to the Lord. But presence is not straightforward. You see, they're at this mountain. Uh, God is at the top, but the mountain is divided into three zones, three levels of closeness to the Lord. The people have to stay at the bottom, away from God's presence. They can't come up. The chosen group of representatives, they can come up near to the Lord's presence, but Moses alone is allowed to go to the very top, into God's presence. Why can't the people come up? Well, when they first arrive at the mountain, Moses is told to set limits around it, to set it apart as a sacred space, a holy mountain. And it's a holy mountain because God descends on it. This is what it says in chapter 19. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. The Lord descends on the mountain, and he is terrifying. When God shows up, sparks fly. There's fire, there's smoke, there's lightning, there's thunder, blackness, brightness, burning, swirling. 
Some scholars think that maybe the, the, volc- it was, the mountain was volcanic, which may well be the way God showed up, might have been some other way. Either way, he showed up and he is terrifying. And then the Lord speaks the Ten Commandments. And just after he does, this is how the people respond. This is chapter 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. The people can't come up the mountain because it's a holy mountain. And it's a holy mountain because a holy God is at the top. Holy means set apart and different. Now, we tend to think of ourselves well, and so when we hear that God is different from us, we tend to assume there must be something wrong with God. But that's not the case. God was very different from Pharaoh. God's holiness means he is good. God's holiness means he is loving. God's holy goodness opposed Egypt with its abusive slavery. God's holy love shattered Egypt with its selfish ambitions. God's holiness is scary enough to destroy Egypt. God's holiness is what got the people out of Egypt. But do you know what's also scary? The people are out of Egypt. But Egypt isn't out of the people. And there's a bit of Egypt inside us all. I went out for a run a couple of weeks ago. Now, I like to think of myself as a bit of a runner. I've got a pair of dedicated trainers for running. I ran a half marathon. It was five years ago, but, you know, still, still run a half marathon. Anyway, I was out for a run, and I'd gone about a mile. I was already starting to get out of breath. When coming the other way, I saw a real runner. And you know, you know the kind of people I mean. Pounding down the pavement. He's, there, he's got the full gear, the 200-pound trainers, the neon colors which just glow and say, look at me, this is how to do it. He had the armband with the latest iPhone, headphones pumping out motivational music. You could just tell this guy gets up at 6 o'clock, downs a protein shake, hits the pavements. There he was, flying towards me. And in that moment, I realized I am not a runner. In the presence of greatness, we get true perspective. God is good. God is loving. God is scarily good and dangerously loving. And compared to him, I realize I am not good and I am not loving. And we know this. We know our failings. We know the places that we don't measure up. Carrying around a sense of we're not the people that we want to be or the people that we should be. The dark secrets, the things we've thought, the things we've done behind closed doors. It's why we, why we carry around a sense of inadequacy. It's why we put on a front when we're with other people. It's why we're scared to admit what we're really like when no one's looking. There's a bit of Egypt inside us all. We are not good and we are not loving. The people can't come up the mountain because it's a holy mountain. It's a holy mountain because a holy God is there, a God who is scarily good and dangerously loving. The people are out of Egypt, but God needs to get Egypt out of the people.
So why can the chosen group come up? Because that's what happens. In verse 1 and 2, God commands them to come up the mountain. And then in verse 9 to 11, that is what happens. And why is there a gap between the two? Well, this is a standard storytelling technique in the ancient world. You have one theme, you interrupt it with something else, and then you come back to that same theme again. Scholars call it a chiasm. I'm going to call it a sandwich. So we've got the bread on the outside, which is the presence of God, and it's interrupted by a filling, and then we come back to the presence of God. And what happens in the middle of the sandwich tells us what allows the people into God's presence. Because what happens in the middle of the sandwich is the covenant ceremony, the official start of the covenant relationship. If the Lord is a king making the people his citizens, this is the inauguration. If the Lord is a groom making the people his bride, this is the wedding. This marks the start of a lifetime of service and love. And it turns out that this is a multi-layered symmetrical sandwich. So we've got presence on the outside, and then in verse 3 and verse 7, the people promise their obedience and say, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. And then in the very center of the sandwich, we've got the sacrifices. Now, if you're an ancient storyteller, you put the most important thing in the middle of the sandwich. So let's start with that. Let's start with sacrifice. Freedom is shaped by sacrifice. Verse 4. Moses gets up early in the morning. He's keen to get going. He builds an altar at the foot of the mountain, a part of rocks or earth, and that represents God. And he sets up 12 pillars, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a covenant partnership between God and Israel. And then there's some sacrifices. Verse 5, he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. It mentions oxen there, uh, may well have included goats, sheep, birds. Now, sacrifice is a very culturally remote for us. But actually, for them, it wasn't that far from the food preparation process. We go to the supermarket and buy our meat in lovely, clean, neat, cling film packages. Someone else has to face the reality of the death of the animal. For them, that was just there every day. And so sacrifice kind of made sense to them. And there were two types of sacrifices. The first one, burnt offerings. In a burnt offering, the whole animal was burnt up. That's why it's called a burnt offering. And they would have got this. Okay? Burnt offering symbolizes the creation of a good relationship. The people know that if they go up the mountain into the holy presence of God, they will burn up. In a burnt offering, the animal burns up instead of them. And with it, any scrap of Egypt left inside them. Their failings, the places they don't measure up, gone. Their painful guilt, their dark secrets, their shame, burnt to an ash. And they sacrifice peace offerings. In a peace offering, some of the animal is burnt up. That's a bit like God eating it. And then some of the sacrifice is given back to the offerer, and they eat it. 
It's a bit like sharing a meal with God. And you share a meal with people that you're okay with. And so a peace offering or a fellowship offering symbolizes and celebrates that a good relationship exists. And then Moses with the blood, well, he, verse 6, he collects it and he puts half in basins or bowls, half he throws against the altar, and then after the sacrifices, he reads the words, and verse 8, he throws the other half on the people and says, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God and his people are joined with sacrifice. Now, the Bible is split into two parts, Old Testament and New Testament. And testament is an old English word that means covenant. So the Bible is split into the old covenant and the new covenant. And the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that the old covenant points to the new covenant. The ceremonies and the sacrifices point, are a shadow cast back through time from a future reality. The blood of a goat can't take away your sin and shame and guilt. It's a goat. But it points to someone who can. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus offered his own blood, his own life as a sacrifice for us in a new covenant when he died on the cross. Jesus is our sacrifice. And you know, Jesus creates a good relationship between us and God. If we were to walk up the mountain into God's holy presence, we would die. But Jesus dies so we can live. All of our failures, the ways we don't measure up, the kind of people that we should be but aren't, dead, nailed to the cross with Jesus. All of our dark secrets, all of our shame, dead with Jesus. Jesus creates a good relationship between us and God, a relationship worth celebrating. Jesus takes the scariness out of God's goodness and the danger out of God's love. Not because he changes God, but because he changes us. Because the problem was never with God. The problem was with us. The problem was not God's holiness. It was our unholiness. And Jesus died to make us holy. So how do we live a sacrifice-shaped life? Well, first of all, become a Christian and get baptized. If you're not a Christian, we would love to invite you to become a Christian and get baptized. Because for these people, to show that they associated with these sacrifices, that the animal died in their place, they went through this ceremony. For us, the way that we show that we want to associate with Jesus is through baptism. And as you're plunged under the water, it's like you're dying with Jesus. And then you're raised out, and it's like you're raised to life with Jesus. And if you would call yourself a Christian and you're not being baptized, get baptized. Because that's the way that you show you want to associate with him. How else do you live a sacrifice-shaped life? You need to place the truth in your life. 
Because when we live our lives, our heads get busy with, oh, I need to cook that, I need to go there, I need to buy that thing, I need to see that person, here's my job, what's he doing? What's he... Our heads are in a swirl. And it won't naturally be shaped by Jesus' sacrifice for us. We need to place the truth in our lives. So you need to get dug into the scriptures and see what God teaches about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Subscribe to a good podcast, read a book, listen to music that takes you to him, and spread it out through your day. Maybe you find a truth, wow, this is what Jesus has done for me. There's no condemnation for me when I'm in Christ. Write it down on a card, stick it in your pocket, put it on the fridge, put a notification on your phone so that it pops up halfway through the day and interrupts you with the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And do it as a community. Yeah, if you're not in a home group, get in a home group. Encourage each other. Speak truth to others. Hear truth from others. Here's another way to live a sacrifice-shaped life. Face the failure in your life. If Jesus has died for us, we don't need to be afraid of the Egypt inside us. Egypt has lost its power. It has died with Jesus, which means we could admit what we've done wrong. We can name it. We don't have to be afraid of it. And again, do this in community. If you're married, talk to your spouse. If you're in a home group, speak to someone you're close to in your home group. If you're not in a home group, join a home group so there's a context there. We've also got a great opportunity coming up. Keys to Freedom is starting in a couple of weeks. That is just a chance for us as a church to say, hey, we want to grow into Jesus' sacrifice and to experience the freedom that he died to give us. Place the truth in your life and face the failures in your life. But freedom is also shaped by obedience. So, uh, before this incident, Moses receives a whole collection of laws. And then he comes down the mountain, and he tells them to the people. And in verse 3, the people say, everything, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then Moses writes them in a book called the Book of the Covenant. And after the sacrifices, he reads them to the people. And the people again say, in verse 7, we will, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, verse 3 describes them as words and laws. Words probably refers to the Ten Commandments, which we get in chapter 20. Laws refers to the three chapters in between the Ten Commandments and the incident we've got today. And they cover absolutely everything. They cover worship, slavery, murder, human violence, death caused by animals, theft of domestic animals, agricultural damage, safekeeping of property, loaning of farm animals, the regulation of sexuality, the treatment of immigrants and the poor, practices of justice. It covers the whole of life because God demands obedience in the whole of life. It's the whole of your life under obedience to the Lord. Over your finances, your social media habits, your priorities, your dreams, your relationships. God demands obedience in all of your life. Obedience is a necessary response. Now, it's important that it is a response. Two reasons we can see this. The first is because sacrifice is the middle of the sandwich. 
And if you're an ancient storyteller, you put the most foundational thing in the middle. So sacrifice comes first, and obedience is a response. Also, if we zoom out, we can see the people have already been rescued from Egypt. They're already free, and now they obey. We don't obey to get our freedom. We obey because we have our freedom. Obedience is not a cause, it's a consequence. Obedience is not a way we say, please, God, love me. It's a way we say, thank you, God, for loving me. But obedience is a necessary response. It's not an optional extra. Now, you might be thinking, hang on, this is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. How does this link to us? You know? And there are some strange laws in here. Now, some of these we can get on board with quickly. Don't murder. Okay, yeah, I think we'd all go with that. Um, if your animal gets out and hurts someone, you should pay them compensation. Yeah, I could probably go with that. Maybe you have to adapt it slightly. Don't wear clothes made of mixed materials. I quite like my 50% cotton and 50% synthetic T-shirts. <laughs> Are we being completely arbitrary with which laws we follow and which we don't? Well, through Moses, God entered a covenant with the Israelites. Through Jesus, God enters a new covenant with us. And we are under a new covenant, not under the old covenant. So the real question is, why don't we follow any of these laws? Well, Jesus, when he came, he is not against the law. He's not anti-law. He says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And Romans 8 tells us that he came not just to fulfill it generically, but to fulfill it in us. What's that mean? If the law's fulfilled in us, well, Jesus summarized the law as love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law is about love. So Jesus came to fulfill the law of love in us. So all these laws, the book of the covenant, that is what love looked like for them at that time in that place. What love looks like for us in this time in this place we read in the New Testament. And lots of laws, like don't murder, are repeated. So if you want to know what laws you should be following, read the New Testament. It's the law of love expressed in very specific ways. So how do you live an obedience-shaped life? First, study the Word of God. How can we obey if we don't know what we're supposed to be obeying. We need to know the word of God so that we can respond to Jesus' sacrifice. We can live in our blood-brought freedom. So study the word. Dig into it. Hunt through all the ways that Jesus commands us to live. If you want to know where to start, Colossians 3 is a great chapter. Go through. What is my old life that I need to put to death? What is my new life that I need to bring to life? We need to study the word of God. Maybe you could set a time aside every day to do it. Build it into your routine. Maybe you could download an audio Bible. Listen to it as you're driving to work. And we need to do this when we don't feel like it. If you want to get fit, you've got to exercise even when you don't feel like it. If you want to eat healthily, you've got to do it even when that lettuce doesn't look very appealing. And if we want to grow in obedience, we've got to study God's word even when we don't feel like it. We can also live an obedience-shaped life 
by studying ourselves. Because lots of the time, we don't really know what we're like. So think about yourselves. What, what do I say? What do I do? What do I think? What makes me angry? What, what makes me ashamed? What, what do I congratulate myself about? What do I beat myself up about? What do I daydream about? What do I do when I've got spare time? What do I avoid? Why do I avoid it? And as you study yourself, compare that to your study of God's word. We can do this in community as well. Why not go to someone you know and say, hey, I want to grow in obedience. What areas do you think I need to work on? And then listen carefully. Don't be defensive. Some things might be right, some things not. But, but listen and see. Because we are called to obedience. And somebody else might be able to help you grow in ways that you don't even know you're able to grow in. Study, study the word of God, study yourself, and then take a step. Obedience is one of those things that it's very easy to think about. Oh, I am going to be a selfless person. I am going to be a generous person. I am going to li- but what are you actually going to do tomorrow to start obeying? So be specific. Maybe there's something that you've got in your mind that God has highlighted right now. What are you going to do today, tomorrow, to start walking in that obedience? Freedom is shaped by sacrifice. Freedom is shaped by obedience. And that is why the people can then go into God's presence. Verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, this group, went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire and stone like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, they ate, and they drank. Fear of his presence is replaced by feasting in his presence because of the sacrifice that they respond to in obedience. Now, exactly what it means to see God, we're not quite sure. In fact, the, this, the description here is quite heavy. kind of talks about something under his feet, so it seems like they're not even seeing God fully, they're just seeing his feet. And they're eating and drinking with him, because you eat and drink when everything's okay. You don't eat and drink when you're scared and afraid you're going to die. You eat and you drink when you have a relationship that is good and worth celebrating. Fear has been replaced with feasting. This is the aim of the covenant relationship, the covenant partnership. God wants to be with his people. And if you follow the storyline of the Bible, that is what you see again and again. After this incident, God moves into a tent, the tabernacle, and camps with his people as they travel through the desert. Why? Because God wants to be with his people. When the Israelites get into Canaan and settle down a land of their own, God moves into the temple, a building. Why? Because God wants to be with his people. But you know what? These people saw God, but we get to see God more clearly. Because 2,000 years ago, God the Son became a man. Why? Because God wants to be with his people. God speaks our language. He speaks human. And when we look at Jesus, we see what God looks like. And we get to experience God more closely. You see, 
just after this incident, well, I mean, the chosen group of representatives are there close to God's presence. And then Moses, as he's been commanded, goes to the very top of the mountain, right into God's presence. But all the time, the rest of the people are left at the bottom. In the New Covenant, on the day of Pentecost, God pours his spirit out on the church. Why? Because God wants to be with his people. And the spirit unites us to Jesus, and Jesus takes us to the top of the mountain into God's very presence. We get to be in God's presence. And more than that, God's presence is in us. Moses then gets some, these instructions written on tablets of stone. But God the Spirit writes the law of love on our hearts. We don't just have to obey out of our own strength. We get to obey with the strength of God himself living in us. Why? Because God wants to be with his people. God has invited us into freedom. The band are going to come up, and we are going to celebrate that freedom. A freedom that is shaped by presence, sacrifice, and obedience. We stand on sacrifice. We respond with obedience, and we live in presence. You have been invited into that freedom. All you need to do now is to live in it.